question of style It's a time for giving In the two-star hotel Where breakfast in bed will head It's just the price of a smile Welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name is Jason Barnard and that was Bebop Deluxe and Made in Heaven from Futurama, the uh, new box set out on Cherry Red because um, there's a new Cherry Red reissue campaign of a range of Bebop Deluxe material. And of course, the leading force behind Bebop Deluxe is Bill Nelson. Welcome, Bill. Thank you. Nice to be here. No, it's a, it's an absolute privilege Um We'll be featuring today a range of, of material from uh, those box sets, as well as uh, some of your more recent solo work. But firstly, I guess it's a, a good time to talk about the Futurama box set, which is out imminently. Um, again, the the, uh, the full cherry red deluxe treatment of uh, triple CD, one DVD set. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's exactly the same kind of um, packaging uh, that they did on the Sunburst Finish album. Um, so it's 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 got the full the full Monty with the remix, 5.1 remix and uh, bits of um, uh, you know outtakes and so on. So it's it's a comprehensive set. Mm. You've been involved in in writing about that time of the band. Yeah, I, I wrote a, um, a, a shortish essay on the on the recording of the band and uh, of the album and, and the things going on around the band at that time and um last week i did um, a filmed interview with at cherry red talking about the making of the album which will be available i think around the time the album comes out on the internet to watch i've seen the photo for that to, to signpost that so i'm really looking forward to that because it's a there's a few interviews already out there on YouTube from Cherry Red already in relation to one or two of the other box sets. Yes, there, there is. There's, well, there, there was a, 
um, uh, an interview that John Leckie and myself did with Cherry Red. We did it here at the house and in my studio, um, which was all about the making of Sunburst Finish and what we remembered from that. Um, and then there was a, a much earlier interview I did with um, Cherry Red uh, with Mark Powell doing the uh, interview, which was um, generally about my career. It was when, it, when a box set came out a few years ago, which covered the entire career up to that that point in time so i've done a couple of things for for cherry red they're very they're very good at um making the packaging something special and mm. backing it up with with documentation and so on so it's, i've been very pleased with the way they've handled things so far yeah and you can kind of say that these new box sets and the range of the bebop deluxe box sets are are almost a definitive versions of those albums given that they encapsulate the whole period and and sometimes they've got live material etc yeah yeah um compared to where the bebop catalog ended up prior to cherry red getting their hands on it it was with warner brothers and they didn't do a very good job at all in fact at one point i think they stuck all all five albums that the band had recorded over the years into one package and sold it for five pounds with, you know, very, very basic packaging. And it was a real disgrace. It it was a shame Mm. it didn't look right at all and and it it felt cheap and Mm. didn't do the band justice. So now that Cherry Red's bought the catalogue from Warner Brothers, they've decided to try and do a proper job on it and, and, and give it the attention it deserves so i'm very i'm very pleased about that that's great and um we'll be playing a range of tracks from uh hopefully i think all the uh the cherry red box sets um very shortly so that's something to look forward to good good uh, before we get there I, I wanted to open with uh one track from your northern dream album and that's uh the the track northern dream in 1957 can you tell me about that that period for you? Because um, were you working for Wakefield Council at the time, but also doing some amateur um, music on the side? Yeah, well, I was I was basically employed as a local government officer, uh, working at the West Riding County Supplies Department. Now, local government officer sounds kind of highfalutin, but it was actually a really boring job sitting behind a desk. Hmm and uh, answering a phone a lot of the day and and sorting out orders for everything that a local government establishment might need everything from pencils to furniture so basically the um the, the music was a, a part-time thing i've been playing in local bands since the late late school days and through art college uh, and i've been in many different kinds of bands anyway i got involved with a local recording studio, which wasn't really a studio. It was a a guy called Mike Levin, and he had a back bedroom which he'd converted into a recording room and had a two-track tape recorder. Mm. And I got involved playing with a group of of musicians who hung out at at this this place. It was called Holy Ground. It was a community of of ex and and still... um, college students who were writing music together and I got involved in that and played on a couple of tracks on a record called Astral Navigations and then one called mm. A to Oster and through that 
I got to know the people there and I started to write songs and uh, went in to record the Northern Dream album, which was produced locally in Wakefield um, and just um, issued in a, co- in a, in, in a uh, basic edition of 300 copies. I don't know if it was 300 or 250, maybe 250. But um, that record, Northern Dream, found its way into the hands of John Peel. And John really liked it and played it on his radio, BBC radio show. And, and, and in fact, the first time he played it, he played the entire album straight through one side and then did a bit of chat, turned it over and played the other side. As a result of that, it was heard by EMI Records and EMI Records invited me to come down and have a chat about possibly Mm. um, signing a solo deal with them. But by that time, I'd just formed Bebop Deluxe. We were in our very early stages. In fact, I think we were about We'd been together about two weeks when I got the call to go to EMI. And EMI said they would like to sign me as a solo artist and re-record Northern Dream using some Mm -hmm. basically good session musicians to back me up. I said I wasn't really interested in that and that I'd got this band called Bebop Deluxe and that I would be more interested in doing something for EMI with the band. They then said, okay, well, we will, we'll come up and, and see you play. And they came to see us play at, at a, a gig in Leeds, a pub in Leeds we were playing. And at the end of the gig, they came to me and said, we don't think the band is up to it, mm. but we still would like to sign you as a solo artist. I, I refused to do that. I said, no, it's, it's, the band were actually my friends at the time. And mm. I said, I, you know, it's, it's all of us or nothing. So they said, okay, well, we'll come up again in six months and see how you've progressed. You've obviously only been together a short amount of time. We'll come up and see how it goes. So they came back, as they promised, in in about six months. By this time, we'd built up a really strong local following and the the place was, the pub was packed out. And they came, but they still weren't convinced. So I I still said no to the solo deal. Mm-hmm. 
then eventually we got a gig playing at the Marquee Club in London. And EMI decided to come along and see how we'd fare with a London audience. They knew that we'd pulled a, a strong audience in Yorkshire, but were concerned that the band wouldn't appeal to a more sophisticated London audience, or so they thought. So we did a gig at the Marquee supporting a band called String Driven Thing, and we went down a storm. And EMI then came backstage and said, OK, if we can't get you on your own, we'll sign, the, we'll sign you with the band. And that's how we got to record the Axe Victim album. Mm. And I've chosen a track called Jets at Dawn, and I think that that's, that really is from that early period of Bebop Deluxe. Yeah, well, we did we did a single called Teenage Archangel on the A-side, and the B-side was Jets at Dawn. And we recorded that at a studio in, I think it was in Halifax or somewhere around there, Dewsbury. It's a studio called Box Studios. And we just went in and recorded those two tracks. And that was before we actually signed with EMI. But when we did sign with EMI, we re-recorded the song Jets at Dawn for the Axe Victim album. So I'm not sure what version you're planning to play here, whether it is the single, which was on Smile Records, or whether it's the album version that that was re-recorded for the Axe Victim album. I think at the minute I've got the album version down. (laughs) Yeah, it's probably the better version anyway, yeah.
And then just going back to Futurama, I've chosen the song Sister Seagull. Was that um, when you um, were in the studio with Roy Thomas Baker? It was, yeah, yeah, yes. We recorded all of that album, Futurama, with Roy Thomas Baker. How was it working with him? Because obviously he's very, very known now for his his work with uh, artists like Queen. Was Did he actually shape that album, or were you kind of more involved in relation to the, the sound of that record? Well, Roy was big at the moment, at that time, because he'd had success with Queen, and which was why EMI uh, decided to put us in the studio with him. And it worked out really well, the album, I think, because... I mean, in terms of the sound, the guy who engineered it had a hell of a lot to do with the way it sounds. And that was a guy called Pat Moran, who sadly passed away some years ago. But he was an absolutely brilliant engineer, and Roy had used him on the Queen stuff as well. And um, I think Roy leaned heavily on on Pat for for the uh, you know the quality of the sound that was got. Working with Roy wasn't the easiest of things. He was kind of, I think because it it was the band's second album and we were so desperate to try and get it to work well, I particularly was very keen on knuckling down and getting the job done properly. And Roy had, had come off the back of his success with Queen and was kind of rather uh, flippant and flamboyant about things and played a lot of kind of schoolboy pranks in the studio which were okay up to a point but then it started to get on my nerves and things were done which upset me a little bit and by the end of the album I felt I don't really see the need for a producer on the next album I don't see why I can't do this myself Free. I'm easy. 
So when it came to Sunburst Finish, I asked EMI if it would be possible for me to produce the album on my own. And they were a bit concerned about that because obviously I had no experience of it other than sitting in a studio with, with Roy Thomas Baker. And um, they suggested that it might be uh, a good idea to co-produce the album with someone else. And the someone else that they suggested was John Leckie. Now, John Leckie had never produced an album before either. He'd been a staff engineer at Abbey Road for some some years, several years. And actually, John had worked as an engineer on a couple of the Axe Victim tracks. So I did know John briefly, and I had got on well with him. So I said, okay, well, let's put us into a situation where we can have a chat about this and, and see if we can come to an agreement that we could do this together. So they, they set up, he might set up a lunch for us at a, a, a restaurant just off Abbey Road. And John and I got together over lunch and we had a chat and we decided that we, you know, we could, we could do this between us. We could do a co-production of the album. And so we, we, we went into the Sunburst Finish project the two of us co-producing and from the off it was absolutely a pleasure to work with John. I learned a lot from him about the engineering aspects of, of production and he picked up ideas from me on the musical aspects of it and we just made a really good team and we went on to produce all the rest of the Bebop albums till the until the band split up, and then in fact went into the Red Noise thing on the same basis. Yeah, uh, whose idea was it to get um, David Mason on Piccolo uh, on Crystal Gazing? David Mason being uh, the the person who featured on Penny Lane. Uh, yeah, well, we uh, you know one of the things we chased with that it was Piccolo trumpet. Yeah, I'd love that uh, solo in Penny Lane that he plays. And um, and because you know we were doing stuff in Abbey Road, and uh, and obviously the Beatles have a huge history with Abbey Road. I wondered whether it was possible for us to get him in, uh, and John pulled the strings and, and and fixed it up. So yeah, we had him on there. That lived on the stairs Passed me in the night Whistling memories of you I stared Too frightened to move For fear my eyes shone a light On the darkness he drew Like a cloak all around his shoulders And the church on the corner
to kind of move to uh, a song from Drastic Plastic now, which is uh, Panic in the World. Yeah. That was a period where you were recalibrating the sound of Bebop Deluxe and uh, the sort of mini Moog was coming in then? Yeah, I mean, we'd, we changed, we didn't change the intrinsic nature of the band, mm. but we changed the sort of context it worked within from album to album. I mean, Axviton does sound quite different to Future Armour. Yeah. And Sunburst Finish sounds different to future, to, to Futurama. And, um, you know, every album onwards moved it along a step and tried different things. I was always conscious of keeping it fresh and keeping things moving forward. So with, with, yeah, with, with the, the, the next album, we, we, you know, we, we did adjust as things went along and, and, uh, Drastic Plastic did have, a it was actually Drastic Plastic was the album that I'd originally intended being a Red Noise album in some ways because uh-huh. I, I wanted I was I wanted to end the Bebop Deluxe thing after Modern Music, but I was persuaded by management and record company just to keep it together for one more album, and uh, Drastic Plastic was the result. So a lot of the stuff that was on Drastic Plastic was edging towards the Red Noise sound, but um, you know still had to stay within the Bebop, Bebop Deluxe Orbit, as it were. So, yeah, that was how that happened.
I do want to move on now to Red Noise, the album Sound on Sound and Furniture Music. Yeah. You know, from what you were talking about in relation to Drastic Plastic, the Bebop Deluxe brand or name, was that just something you felt very constricted because people were expecting a certain sound from you? Well, yeah, to a degree, there was, you know, it was this expectation of, you know, every time we went out on tour, you'd have a new album to present, but most people wouldn't, Mm. well, obviously, wouldn't be familiar with it as a new album. So they would expect you to play, if if we were on, on, say, on the Modern Music album, they would expect us to play tracks from Axe Victim, Future Armor, and Sunburst Finish. And Mm. obviously for... When we were touring regularly, that became not so exciting for the band because we wanted to play the newer stuff. And so there was always this expectation around the name that you were going to play your old hits and, Mm. you know, they'd tolerate the new material. But once they got used to the new album and had listened to it a few times, then they would want that. But by that time, you'd moved on to the next thing. So that was a bit frustrating sometimes. So I just thought, I need to break the mould. I need to sort of have a different concept altogether. Mm. I was also um, a little bit concerned about being tagged as a guitar hero and that that had to be the centre of everything we did. Mm. So with the Red Noise project, the idea was that I would use the name Red Noise, but it could be anything. It could have a different line-up. It wasn't going to be a fixed band. Uh, the lineup could change according to the the way the music was moving, um, and it was just just a name that, that that could hold a lot of different ideas. Yeah. 
song um, that I'm particularly fond of is from a few years after that, or is it, might, it might be a year after that, the the album The Love That Whirls, Diary of a Thinking Heart, um, yeah. the track The October Man, which again was an album and single that, that made the charts in that period. Yeah, well, well, The Love That Whirls came after Quit Dreaming and Get On The Beam and actually was recorded specifically for Phonogram. It was on the Mercury label, which is a, Mer- which is a Phonogram label. Mm. Um, so that was the follow-up to Quit Dream and Get on the Beam, and, and The October Man is a track from that album. And um, I think that's quite a good album. It, uh, it, again, it had moved on a little from the Quit Dreaming album. It was a, a little more synthesizer-oriented, but has has a kind of a st- strong um, pop feel, but a, a very, very 80s, but, you know, uh, it does work as, as a whole album. But the October Man does have a fair amount of guitar. It's Ebo guitar that's on that track, and um, it has uh, marimbas and kind of exotic percussion. Uh, it was a fun album to make. That's a track that, um, compared to some of the other material in that that period, that that you feel that really holds up and resonates today. Yes, I mean it's a track which, when I've gone out occasionally with a band to play. Um, We've we've done the October Man and, and uh, it, it it works it still works in in the current context if you know what I mean.
And as we move to the late 1980s, I've chosen Lady or a Strange Girl, um, which yeah. which was originally on the is it Demonstrations of Affection box set. Yes, it is. Yeah. That seems a very productive period for you in terms of um, re- releasing material, but again, a, a challenging period of time as well. Yes, well, I had um, I'd gone completely independent at that time. I was doing all my releases on cocktail records on my own label. Um, I also had a, a manager looking after, supposedly looking after me, and running the label, who was actually looking after himself. Mm. And uh, uh, things financially became um, somewhat fraught, and I had a lot of problems, uh, which ended up in, in a divorce as well, which added to the, the, the troubles I had. Mm. And a lot of the material at that time that I was writing did reflect some of some of what was going on around me. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's a kind of a um, a reflection on, on all the things that had been happening to me at that time. And I'm fond of a, a live version of of that track, uh, "Lady or a Strange Girl," that, from the uh, Metropolis Studios album. How do you? Oh yeah. How did you reapproach some of that? older material and kind of bring it to life? Did you feel you needed to be faithful to the older tracks or were you completely deconstructing them? Um, well, it was difficult because, I mean, I'd never... To be honest, I, I, when an album's released, once it's released and done, I very rarely listen to it again because mm. I'm on with the next project and I'm more interested in that one than, than things I've done. So when albums are released and they're out there, I leave them to get on with whatever the job they've got to do whether people like them or don't like them mm. they have a life of their own but my attention tends to be on the next project and moving forward so when I did come to sort of have to reproduce some of those tracks for the Metropolis thing or for any I did a tour in 2004 mm. which we called the Bebop Deluxe and Beyond Tour and I had to listen to those old tracks again which I hadn't listened to for many years and figure out how to approach them anew. And, you know, you, you try to stay within certain parameters so that it's a recognisable song. People can recognise it from the from the records, but, but you want to inject something into it which, which mm. um, you can identify with as being yourself in the here and now. And also, you know, the, the different musicians will bring something slightly different to the interpretation each time. So I don't I don't worry too much about it sounding exactly like it did on the record. It 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 can, it can have a um a, a new kind of life to a degree. Sleepwalk away from this 
Another song that um, featured in uh, some of that live material that you released that I think works, you know, marvelously well is a song originally on Luxury Lodge, and that's "Wonder of the Moment." Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We've done we've done that live. Yeah, yeah. It's a very simple song. It's it's um, it's basically it, you know when it started out on on the, on that particular uh, album, it was just an aside in the studio. It was written. Because I, at that time, the, the, the lady who is, is my wife now, but was, was my girlfriend at the time, she was in Japan, she's a Japanese lady, Amiko, and she was in Japan, mm. and I was in England, and I was, you know, missing her very much, and I'd been in the studio doing something else, and decided just to put something as a, almost like a personal message to send to her, and it, it was an acoustic based song quite short mm. about about just missing this person and uh, we eventually did it live and extended it i wrote some further verses to extend it because it was very very short in its original version uh, but that's 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 how that came to be
drifting When you're dreaming Can you grasp this This deeper meaning When we wonder Of the moment Comes around In the starlight In the moonlight Do you remember When the wonder of the moment struck us down Bringing us up to date in the in the last few tracks, or relatively up to date, that is, I've uh, picked uh, Beyond These Clouds, The Sweetest Dream. Yeah. In terms of some of your more recent material, I've read that you uh, principally record at home now and, um, you know, are very prolific. And would you say the, the culmination now of you just being absolutely free to choose whatever sound, whatever instrument that you want so that you can just be truly free? Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, I've, I've given up on the touring thing because um, I have certain issues with my health. I have diabetes and um, mm. problems arising from that. And, um, you know, last December I celebrated my 70th birthday. So I feel like the touring thing is behind me. I've done a lot of touring in the past. Mm. And certainly in the 70s, we were virtually constantly on tour or constantly in the studio one after the other. So, but I've always preferred recording to performing live anyway. The studio I find is a place of infinite possibility and uh, I approach you know, recording like painting. It's it's uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful process where you can paint pictures in sound. And now that I don't have, I mean, I have a, a, a deal with Cherry Red Records for past catalogue, but mm. the current music I make is on my own label released, either as CDs or as digital downloads. And I have the absolute freedom to do as much or as little as I need, and in any particular genre or style, I can, uh, you know, release a, a straight rock record or yeah. do something completely avant-garde and ambient. And there are no, there's nobody breathing down my neck saying that's not commercial. You can't do that. There is an audience. I've, I've discovered that there is an audience for all kinds of records that I put out. There's some people that will prefer the vocal, rock-driven stuff. There's some people who will prefer the more ambient stuff. There's some that will like the jazzier stuff. You can sustain a career just doing 
what you enjoy doing, no matter what it is, whether it's one style or another. And there will be somebody that will pick up on that and and want to listen to it. So the idea of just going down one path and not deviating from that, for me, is now a, a, you know redundant. I, I don't I don't have the the need to do that anymore. With your own website, and I understand you've also got a, a Bandcamp site, you can directly release your material to 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 the, those people that that cherish your music. Yes, yeah, and and it's 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 great because it's you know it's an international audience. I don't need the kind of popular. Um, I don't know, fame you could call it. I don't need the, the kind of extreme mm. wealth that those kind of things, popular things can generate. Yeah. I just need enough to be able to keep my head above water and continue to make music for a living. Mm. Um, and that's, that's, that's the only goal in commercial terms that I have is just to be able to keep keep doing this you know to be able to keep making the music that i love making uh i'm not looking for massive you know huge sales and and huge incomes um i just need to be able to survive and be comfortable and able to continue to make music the way i want to make it
the final track today is uh, brings us a little closer up to date, and it's uh, Ever the Dreamer from Songs for Ghosts from, I think, 2017. Yeah. You talked previously about being free to craft the music how you see fit, but then there are different audiences for different types of genres that, that you, that you uh, yeah. make. Ever the Dreamer fitting into a bit more of that rock ballad tradition? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I still, you know, I've always loved all kinds of music. I've never sort of just said, well, you know, my my tastes are prog and that's it, or my tastes are folk and that's it. Mm. I've always listened to lots of music since being young. My father was a musician and, and brought a lot of big band swing records into the house. And then when I was... In my pre-teens and early teens, I was into guitar instrumentals, and then I got into jazz and blues and, you know, the folk scene, country music even, you know, with, with people like Chet Atkins and so on, and mm. classical music. I love uh, Elgar, Foray, uh, Vaughan Williams, so so much classical music and then there's the avant-garde scene you know people like john cage and stockhausen and all all the the people who've experimented over the years with with music and i find something to like in most kinds of music the only music i guess I, i i sort of don't really enthuse about is music that talks down to to people that presumes that you haven't got much intelligence or something i don't know how to put it but hmm. but you know banal kind of pop music doesn't appeal to me very much although i can yeah. i don't I, it's got its place and it appeals to people that that like that kind of thing and perhaps don't want to spend much time and energy on thinking about anything more complex but yeah so so all those different things those different tastes have fed into my my own uh, sensibilities to a degree and not necessarily consciously but unconsciously they're bubbling under the surface whenever I make a piece of music I'll be drawing on some kind of uh, influence from somewhere inspiration from somewhere or other and uh, you know you find that even perhaps on, on individual tracks there'll be elements from different genres appearing in one song there might be sort of a strange avant-garde noise Mm. within the context of a straight rock song that has um a jazzy guitar solo you know i like mixing them all up together and and uh and and making a hybrid kind of music a mutant form Mm. so yeah so sometimes yeah sometimes the rock thing comes to the fore Sometimes something else comes to the fore. Before we close with Ever the Dreamer, what's next for you in uh, 2019? I I assume just um, some more new music for you? Yeah, well, I mean, at the moment, I've got 12 albums waiting to be released. Wow. I'll obviously not get them all out, you know, within the next year or two. It'll be, they'll come out over the next probably three or four years. But um, I, I never stop recording every day. I enter the studio with a with a new idea, and I'll work on that, and uh, and just you know just just do it. Just that my, my sort of philosophy is basically it's like um, just sticking it down on canvas, and then putting it aside, and getting on with the next thing, and then later listening back and deciding that 
well, this track would work with that track and I can pull this track from here and you end up with an album and then the album sits and waits for a release and you assemble another album from another set of tracks. So it's, you know, only rarely do I actually sit down and decide to make a complete album with a, a, a running concept all the way through it. It's generally just recording individual tracks according to how the day might go or how I feel that day and then making sense of them a little later down the line and pulling the right tracks together to assemble an album. Thank you so much, uh, Bill. It's been such a privilege talking to you about a full range of your material from the early days, the Cherry Red reissues of the Bebop Deluxe albums of of the mid-70s, as well as, um, you know, Red Noise and your solo material. Uh, Thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Take care, Bill. Okay. You too. All right, then. All the best. Thank you. Bye-bye.
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's been almost 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.